and uh, it made for, and, and there's, this, there's this dynamic in our relationship where I get this idea as like a dreamer, as, you know, kind of a big idea guy, and I have this beautiful built-in system or vetting process in who I married. Like, okay, I have this idea. I wonder if I can sell it to her, <laughs> you know? And what's, what's great about the two of us, if you guys know us, is like, she's, she's a good sport, meaning she's not going to shoot every idea down, but, but you have to win her over. Like, I have to win her over. For instance, there was a time I was like, hey, honey, how about for our first house, we buy a yurt? <laughs> that one fell a little flat. Or here's another one under the same vein of the first house thing. I was like, hey, honey, you know, real estate, this is back, this is hilarious. This is back in 2006 or seven. I'm like, real estate in Evergreen is just outlandish. This is insane, you know? What if we could try to, what if we could try to, to live in the 55 or older housing here in Evergreen? There's a place, right, I'm actually looking at it right now, that's 55 old. I could be like the chaplain, and she's just, the whole time, she's just shaking her head, like, no, no. That, okay, Josh, you don't like hot places. That place is warm. We've been there, like, it's always 75 degrees. You're going to sweat to death, Okay. And every old lady loves to talk to you. And you love to talk to them. You're not going to get anything done. And they're not going to let us because we're not 55. You know, like there's this whole, you know, just like, and, and she was, but you, you can picture, if you know Christy, you can picture her. She wasn't saying it like that. She was like, really, Josh? You know, like, maybe you need to think about this a little bit more. As she, you know, as she takes my ankles and puts them back on the ground. Um, I also have, uh, I, I'm fairly, not as, as, as well as a dreamer, I'm also fairly optimistic. And sometimes I have misplaced optimism. In fact, most, most weekends I'm probably way too optimistic about what is going to get done. You know, I, I'm kind of like Buddy the Elf. I'm like, okay, this weekend first, we're going to make snow angels for two hours, and then we're going to go ice skating, and then we're going to eat a whole roll of cookie dough, and, and, and then we'll snuggle, you know. It, it, but for me, it's like, we're going to, this weekend, we're going to clean the garage. We're going to go uh, see a movie. We'll hike Bergen Peak. We'll, we'll have a sleepover with five different of our kids' friends. And then I'll preach on Sunday, and, and it'll be great, you know. And she's just like, and, and I do this, I do this too for, um, I do this too for uh, like like vacations. Okay, when we get there, we're gonna do this, and we're gonna do that, and then, and every time, Christy's just very kindly and very cautiously just kind of takes my ankles and puts them back on the ground, and that's the dynamic in our relationship as husband and wife, and it really is is a good dynamic, although I'm, sh you know, like there are times where, you know, it, it causes strife and problems because I, I really think we can do something. She's like, I really don't. And I've learned to actually trust her judgment because that's one of her gifts is judgment and kind of discernment and wisdom on that kind of stuff. Um, but here's the thing is, is, is one of the things that I've learned about myself, and I want you to try this on for yourself today, is one of the things I'm grateful for Christy for, you know, putting my feet back on the ground is really sometimes I have expectations that are really unreasonable. Expectations that are really unrealistic for life in general. Expectations that are just straight up naive. 
that life is not that way. And, and you know, we laugh and we joke about, you know, Christy kind of keeping, keeping me even keeled. But the reality is if, if, if I let my expectations get out of control, it causes all sorts of trouble. But it also causes a lot of sadness, <laughs> you know. Like anytime we have naive expectations, we're in for a world of hurt. You know, if we have expectations of like, like the simple ones that we have kind of as children, that life should be fair. Why do, we, why do we as parents, why are we as parents so diligent in trying to get that out of our kids? You know, I remember my mom when I was a kid, I'd be like, Mom, that's not fair. And, she, and my mom would say, Joshua, fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. I have no clue what it means, you know, and, and the thing is, kids in the room, just, you got to bear with us as parents, we know what we're talking about, but sometimes we have no clue what we're saying, it's the truth, right, parents, like, like, let's be honest, like, we know that if you go through life, think, that's not fair, you're just going to be sad all the time, because life's not fair, you know, we need to get rid of that naive expectation, or the idea that opportunities will just fall into my lap, you know, if, 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 if everything's right in the world, opportunities should just plop, there they are, and I can just go, you know, oh, I, look at it, I just, I got that promotion, and I, you know, oh, I'll raise with it too, you know, and the reality is if you really, and if you've been in the professional world for long enough, that it, the, the truth is, and I've, t- I've talked to you guys about this before, like, did you know that 70% of employees would get a raise if they asked for one? But don't expect that to just happen, especially right now, right? Because opportunities don't just fall in our lap. we got to go get them sometimes. You know, everybody should like me. This is what I struggle with a lot. It's like, everybody, you know, everybody should like me. You know, I, we should be likable. It's like, we're going to look at Jesus today in preparation for Easter. And this is the Son of God. This is one of the most, like, like you talk about Jesus now. Everybody likes Jesus now. But when he was here, very few people liked him. Most people were frustrated with him. Because it's, it's, it's kind of a naive thing that everyone should like me. In a broken world, that's just kind of silly to think about. Here's one that I, I struggle with when I, was, when I was a kid. Students, I want to speak to you here. This is, this is one that I wish I'd known. There's somebody who talked to me about. Was I had this idea that th- there is something out there that I am naturally just good at. And I just need to find it. And then once I find it, life will be good. So like sports, I tried sports when I was in middle school, high school, and they didn't come easy, so I just quit. Spanish, come on, I didn't want, like, like this is, yo soy, I don't know, like I just, I've like, I, I, get, I was like, I, I quit it. And now I'm like, why did I quit Spanish? It was like, because it's hard. And, and that's this naive assumption that it was like, oh, if it's hard work, that's not my natural gift, that's not something I need to go, you know, like that's not something that comes easy to me, therefore I'm, I, sh- I probably shouldn't do it. And it's just silly. And I've found that there are some things I'm naturally good at, and those are actually the things I work the hardest at. But the naive assumption can get me in trouble. It got me in trouble at the time. Here's the point. I think we could argue that our expect- expectations, almost more than anything in life, have a sense of, of determining our reality, determining how we experience life if we expect it to be one way and it's something else that hurts our brain and it makes it hard to enjoy what's actually going on even if there are good things you've all experienced this good things are going on and you're still mad it's your birthday party 
and you're like, and you're frustrated and you want to cry. Dude, parenting, six-year-old birthday parties. <laughs> Holy crap, those are the worst. Because the six-year-old's like, we're going to do this, and then we're going to pin the tail on your donkey, and then everybody's going to laugh right when I tell this joke. And it's like, okay, honey, just slow down. We're going to have a great day, but it might not look exactly like that. doesn't matter. Tears every time. What is that? That's expectations getting in the way of our happiness. That's, uh, uh, the, what did I just say? I, we could argue that, that more than anything in life, our expectations have a way of determining our reality, or at least our, our take on reality, our reality on what is actually happening. It determines how we look at the world. Our expectations can determine how we look at uh, ourselves. Our expectations can have a way of looking at uh, our view of others, if they're trustworthy or worthwhile and what we expect of them. You know, they didn't come through, and so we treat them differently, right? And... I, I think that our expectations can play a role in determining even how we view God. They, they, they determine our theology sometimes. You know, like, like this, if, if God is real, this is how it should be. If God is real, I would see him or I would feel him more or he would do more of this. You know, if God was real, I would expect this to be true. You know, I, I, I talk with, I, I, I have a lot of, I probably hang out with as much people outside the church than as inside the church. And a lot of my friends who are outside the church are not sure about God. What's hung up about God is this phrase. I just can't, I can't picture a God who would do this. I just can't, I can't really, you know, get behind a God who, fill in the blank. If God, in other words, if God was real, then I would see him more. I, I would feel more. I, this would be right. If God was with me is another expectation we can have in life. Th this wouldn't be happening. If God was with me right now, I, I, I would feel better about myself. If, if God was with me right now, I'd have the strength that I need to do, you know, if, if God was with me right now, fill in the blank. What is it for you? If God, like, let, let's, let's just pause for a second. If God was with you right now, is, would life be different? If, if you believe that God was with you, or what would God have to do for you to, maybe another way to ask it, what would God have to do in your life for you to believe that he's with you? There might be an expectation an unrealized expectation under that. If God was good, this is a big one. If God was good, life would be good. As it, and it wouldn't just be good. It would be good as I define good. Because I know what's good for me. If God was good, this would be true. I love this quote from Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey is actually he's a, a world-renowned author that lives like three miles that way. And he says this, we tend to think life should be fair because God is fair. But God is not life. Isn't that pretty good? God is not life. And if we confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting constant good health, for example, then I set myself up for crashing disappointment. 
And if we're honest with ourselves, I think a lot of us, if life is good, God is good. But the moment that life is not good, we start to question whether God is good or not because of expectations. If God is with us, if God is real, if God is good, then why is this happening to me? See, this is so important. This conversation leading up to Easter, we're going to tie it into Easter here in a second. For many of us, our expectations, it's so important because our expectations of God are determining what we actually believe about God. Did you catch that? I don't want you to miss that. I believe that for many of us, our expectations of God are determining a lot of what we believe about God. Our, our expectations about what he should be like determines what, what we believe, if we believe, how much we believe about God. And here's the kicker. Whether that's true or not, whether those beliefs are true or not, it, it, it's still our expectations have this very powerful effect on whether we be, what we believe about God, whether it's true or not, which is why we need to talk about this. So what if they're wrong? What if the emotional response, this visceral reaction we have to life, what if we confuse God with life? And if life is bad, then God must be not good or not real. What if that's wrong? What if we miss out? What would we miss out? And then this, this is really the key question. How do we make sure, how does one make sure that our expectations about God don't actually keep us from God. I know this is deep. I, I know this is kind of like philosophical, but I think it's really important. How do we make sure that our expectations for life and our expectations for God don't actually keep us from God? Enter Easter. Enter the Easter story. And here's why I think the Easter story is so important for what we're talking about today. is because Jesus, who came 2,000 years ago, entered a world that was, it was a highly religious world that was full of expectations. You're going to find out today, I want us to look at some of the cultural things that were going on. Some of the, the socio-economical things that were going on. Some of the religious things that were going on. At the time that Jesus was, was on earth, because, here's the, here's the deal, there was, like, when he came, there, it was full of expectations. There was a, there was a very religious world that was fully, fully expecting God to do something. It was kind of like this, imagine... Israel, this country, this little country in the Middle East that was part of the Roman Empire. Imagine it being kind of like a company that didn't have a CEO for a while. But it was still a company. There's still, you know, this, this nation, they still wanted to be a nation, but they didn't have their own leader. Yes, they had Caesar, but he didn't count. They didn't like, they didn't want him to be CEO. And to, to like, they, they, they're this nation that with pride, they're, they're the people of God, they're the, the children of Abraham. Their religion was very important to them. Their culture was very important to them. They liked being Jewish, but they didn't have a CEO. And to make things worse, expectation-wise, in their scriptures, in the Torah, there was all of these prophecies that talked about a CEO coming. 
that someday there would be a CEO that would come and, and, and unite the company again and raise them up. And what's crazy is during that time, every, like, like the, the basic, well, actually really, what it really was is this CEO, that what, what the scriptures talked about was this person that would come that would be the Messiah. The, 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 and the Messiah would come and would deliver Israel, okay? Now, here's the thing about this word deliver. At the time, and this would be so, what's so cool about this, I, I was geeking, I'm a geek about the Bible, but I was geeking about this is, about it this week because the fact that we know, this was 2,000 years ago, folks. This was a long, long time ago in a very small part of the world, and we have extreme detail from all sorts of, you know, obviously the Bible, but also there's all sorts of authors around, uh, around the Bible that were outside of the Christian faith or the Jewish faith that wrote about what life was like. And we have, his, we have preserved historical context for what it was like to be in this area 2,000 years ago. And, and the truth was, in this Jewish nation, this, the, every, it, like, there was a lot of different people there was a lot of, there, there was people who were in control, there was people who were poor, there was people who were fired up and revolutionary, there was people who were like, no, we shouldn't start a revolution, we should just, you know, bide our time and keep friends with, there's all of these differing opinions, there's, it, I mean, it's really pretty chaotic, but what brought them all together, what really um, created a common ground for all of these different people within the Jewish nation was this one idea. Yeah, I might disagree with you on this or what we should do with the Romans, but can we all agree? We hope the Messiah is coming soon. Can we all agree that God has spoken? He, he, he will, he will, it will not always be this way, whether maybe not in my lifetime, but in the future, God will make good on his promise and his hope to send us a deliverer. They all agreed on that, but what was <laughs> so interesting is while they all agreed on that, when you go talk to people, about what that meant, what does it mean for the Messiah to deliver us? You would probably get an answer, a different answer for every person that you talk to. I mean, it's not that different than now. I mean, we're talking politics, right? Of what we think that a, a, a president should be like, or a governor, or what, what, what's the role of government in our lives? Should it be this or should it be that? Should it be big, should it be little? Should it be, you know what I mean? We all have different opinions. And in this case, a lot of, like, if you ask somebody, hey, what do you think the Messiah is going to be like? What do you think, you know, God's going to deliver us through the Messiah? What would that look like to you? And as a result, there's all these different opinions. And, but they come from, all the different opinions come from expectations. Different expectations of what God would do depending on what you thought. And, and, here, and the reason is, I mean, you've got, you've got the Pharisees, you've got the religious rulers. So if you talk to him, you talk to, to a Pharisee about what deliverance meant, it would be, oh, he's going to come and deliver us so that we can worship the way we want to worship. We can have the temple the way, like, like the temple at the time was theirs, kind of, but it was actually built by a guy named Herod, <laughs> who was not Jewish. And he built it because he thought it'd be kind of cool to build, and it would kind of pacify the people and buy, pay them off. So like, yeah, we want a temple, but we're not quite sure you want to build it, build it. So there was this dynamic. So, so this idea of like a deliverable, like, well, he'll take Herod out of the picture, and it'll be our temple. If you talk to a zealot, 
somebody who is zealot comes from the word zealous for their cause. They're like, no, the deliverer will come. He'll give us freedom from Rome. Not, will, not only will like, Rome be gone, he'll crush Rome. And we'll, he'll, he'll restore us to the time of David. We'll be powerful again. We'll be on the map as a sovereign nation. That's what we need deliverance from. If you talk to a poor person, and be like, I'll tell you what deliverance would look like. There's this system in place that's keeping me poor. And there was. What's interesting, I read a really interesting article uh, this week in uh, National Geographic about the life of Jesus. And it was talking about what it meant to be a farmer during that time, in this time frame. A family of five would need somewhere between five and a half and six and a half acres. And most, most, of, most of the people were farmers in that area. The, the, probably the overwhelming majority of people's careers were farming. And the average family that was a farmer would need somewhere between five and a half and six and a half acres. And catch this, I didn't know this. It, it, like, you know how they'd have to keep seed stocked so that you can plant seed next year? You can't eat all of the crop, otherwise you won't have anything to plant. Did you know that it was at a ratio of one to five? That for every, f- you know, every fifth part of the crop had to be kept back? Can you imagine being hungry and being like, but I know in that closet, you know, there's, there's something, but honey, don't you dare, you know? It's different than sneaking, you know, into the refrigerator at midnight and having cereal or something. It's like, no, like this is our livelihood, you know? And the reality was that before taxes, most people in the ancient world were on the brink most families were on the brink. They, they barely had enough. Enter Rome, who taxed them heavily and took, you know, like, took a percentage of their, you know, like a large percentage of their, their crops and their income. And it pushed a lot of people well below the poverty line, the, the, exist, you know, the subsistence existence line. Can you imagine if that was your story and what would your attitude toward Rome, but also not just Rome, but there's, there's also another element. There's people that over the temple that are taking advantage of you too. What would your attitude be towards them? And if someone said deliverer, what would you think of? You see where I'm going with this? Expectations everywhere you turned in the ancient world during the time of Jesus. The disciples, the, the people who were closest to Jesus, who heard his teachings, Firsthand, if you talked about deliverance for them, it was like this status thing. It was like a deliverance from mediocrity. No, I'm going to be great, James. No, I'm going to be great. You know, like, like, like Jesus going big time as the Messiah meant that they were like right next to Jesus. And it meant that their name meant something. And life wasn't just mediocre anymore. I'm saying all this because I, I want you to feel what it would be like to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And everywhere you go, something's expected of you. And for good reason. Because as we know, if you've read the Gospels, as Jesus came onto the scene, he did incredible things. Everywhere he went, he healed people. He, and, and he kind of got bigger and bigger. It started with like turning water into wine at a party, at a wedding. And then it's like, you know, he healed the, the, uh, like, uh, someone with leprosy. And then we talked about last week how he calmed the, the, the waters. Like, like, and, and that fr- at first they were like, this is cool. And then it kind of freaked him out because he's like, even the waves and the wind obey him. And then it kind of almost culminated when, when this man named Lazarus died. 
the word had gotten out that Jesus, three days after he had died, went, or four days after, went and rose him from the dead. This is what's happening. I mean, it's all a stir. If there was a newspaper or, you know, like, you know, like a tabloid or something, like Jesus would have been all over it as people were trying to figure out who is this guy. I heard he said, I heard he thinks he's the Messiah. Fast forward. Jesus has been doing a lot of his ministry, a lot of his work in the northern portion of Israel, in an area, a region called Galilee, which was where he was from. But word was he was working his way towards the city of Jerusalem. And with every step that he took, Towards the city of Jerusalem, expectations rose. And here's why. Imagine if somebody, I think really the best way to look at what we're going to talk about today. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day that that kicks off the Easter Holy Week where Jesus entered Jerusalem. And here's why this is so important. Again, I'm going to try as best as I can to bring this into light, into context. Guys, we cannot even... Like, we can't even start to taste what, what they were, what the Israelites, the Jewish people, what was going on during the time when Jesus set foot into Jerusalem. We can't understand the context. We can't understand J- Jesus hadn't been to Jerusalem for a while. And, and as basically every time he took a step towards Jerusalem, with every step he took towards Jerusalem, it was like him saying, I am the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. Because that it was, it'd be like, it'd be like somebody who's like, man, is, is she going to run for president? Are they going to run for president? Is he going to run for president? And the, oh, oh, he, he, he's going to, he's going to be, he's going to be in Washington, D.C. next week. I wonder if he's going to run for president. Jesus walking into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was his way of saying, I am the Messiah. I am Jesus I am running for president, and I approve this message. I'm not joking you. Like, that, that is the whole, everything about it. The fact that he hadn't been there for a while. The fact that, peop, like, most of the people who were really mad at him were there. And he, he's, he's like, yeah, that doesn't bother me. I'm going towards the conflict. The fact that he had already said, hey, I, 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 he said certain things that made it very clear he thought he was the Messiah. All, in all of these things, um, the, fact, the fact that, oh, this is a big one. During this time, this is happening during Passover, which is one of the biggest Jewish holidays, one of the major three Jewish holidays in the calendar year. And Jerusalem at this time would have been about 50,000 inhabitants that lived in the city of Jerusalem. And it, it might have doubled overnight during Passover, during a festival like Passover. It could the population could have doubled overnight. Oh, so not only is Jesus coming to Jerusalem, he's coming to Jerusalem when it's double the size. He must have something to say. This is the expectation. Can you feel it? Can you feel the energy in the air? This is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 11 this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles. Actually, Matthew 21. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 21. 
because we're going to read through about half the chapter. If not, we have the, the words on the screen. Verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, and he said this to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt nearby, with her colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. Now how Jesus knew that, they, they stopped guessing as to how Jesus knew stuff like that. He just knew. And, and they're like, okay, so we're going to go see. And then this next part, I love this next part. If anyone says, this is verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them. Kids, I got a really good one for you. Next time you're in the cupboard looking for some food after school and you're not quite sure if it's okay or not, and your mom's like, hey, what are you doing? Hey, the Lord needs these. <laughs> it's a trump card. What else are you supposed to say? Hey, the Lord needs them. And he will send you them right away. Oh, it just works. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. It's going to talk about the donkey here in a second. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. This is out of Zechariah, by the way. Gentle and riding on a donkey. Now pause, back up a second. See daughter Zion. See, see Jewish people. Your king is coming to you. What do you picture? Big, big, celebratory. Parade, fireworks. You know, if it was American, it'd be loud. It'd be it booms and pops and you know, tanks. See, to is, is see your daughter comes to you as your king comes to you, daughter Zion. Gentle, not what you expect him to be. Riding on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. And we think that this means literally it's a donkey that had never been ridden on. And there's, we're not quite sure what the symbolism there, but there's a couple possibilities. One is like Jesus is coming in and saying, I'm doing something new. I'm riding, I'm riding a donkey that's never been rode before. I'm riding a wave that you have yet to have seen before. And it says that the, the other donkey was behind, like it's the mother, the, the, it's probably a donkey that hadn't yet been separated from its mother. So the mother had to come along with it. And some, some people think that that might mean like the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Covenant, the way that God had been interacting with people for a couple thousand years, and Jesus was ushering in the New Covenant. They, might, they, they probably, but here's the thing, most of the people that had seen that would have been like, oh, cool. You know, they wouldn't walk by like, oh, he must be starting a New Testament or a new covenant. You know, that was not what they were thinking. They were thinking all sorts of things. Oh, oh, what's he riding on? Interesting choice. Here's what he, what, what, what he was not riding on. A war horse. He was not riding on a, 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 a chariot. He was not riding on a vehicle or an animal that was built to go to war. So at first point, especially with this verse in mind, here comes your king gentle and riding in on a donkey. Oh, is, is, is Jesus is being meek. And it's true. 
I, I, I love this word meek, by the way. It's, it's something until a couple years ago I really didn't understand it. And I know the, the Bible would talk about it. I don't get that. Meek is to, it, may, it looks like, meek looks like weakness when it really is strength. It takes, and, and here's, here's what's cool about the donkey. Yes, it's meek in one sense. In another sense, there's a lot of swagger riding in on a donkey. Because it, it basically what Jesus, is, so, so like a king, a donkeys would, would be used, um, kings would ride donkeys. It's not that it would don, a king would never ride a donkey, but the, they wouldn't ride a donkey until the battle was won. <laughs> Because a donkey was a symbol of peace. They would leave the city to go to war on a war horse or a chariot. They would come back symbolically riding a donkey, being like, we're done, y'all. We've won. We have the victory. Isn't that cool? So, so people, would be, they would definitely be taking note. He's on a donkey? Interesting ride. Interesting choice. They knew what he was saying, but it challenged expectations. Let's keep going. The disciples went, verse 6, and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on, like a saddle. Verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. We'll get to that in a second. While others cut branches from the trees, from palms, and spread them on the road. The crowds went out ahead of him, saying, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, David being the greatest king they've ever had. Hosanna to the, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Jesus. We are excited to see what you are going to do for Israel. We're excited to see what your career means for us. Hosanna in the highest of heavens. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Meaning, meaning you couldn't be in Jerusalem that week. Yes, you got Passover preparations. Yes, you got relatives you, you maybe only see this kind of time of year. Yes, there's a lot to do, but guaranteed some of your energy and time and your conversation went to asking this question, who is he? Who is this guy? And the, the city was stirred, high energy, saying, is this it? And some were saying, yeah, Rome's going down. In fact, in the book of Luke, right before, the chapter before this, Jesus had done so many miracles, and they'd watched, um, it was right after uh, Zacchaeus had this, like, crazy life change, like, I'm going to give half, I'm a tax collector, but I'm going to give half of what I've weighed to the poor, and I'm going to give it back to everybody, what I've stole from them, times four, and it's like, Zacchaeus, are you bad at math? Well, you should be good at math. I don't know if you can do that, but it's, that's cool. You know, like, like he, he, he was in, they watched Jesus do these incredible things. And it's, Luke makes the comment like this, this kind of narrative uh, commentary. He's like, some people thought the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. And in the Jewish mind, they're like, is there going to be an earthquake? Is there going to be a, a flood like in the time of Noah where the, 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 the evil are judged and the righteous raise up through and God brings deliverance through the Messiah. And everybody was talking about the Messiah. And everybody was talking about deliverance. But nobody was talking about the cross. What happened in the next seven days 
nobody expected. And we're going to leave the story there because it's Palm Sunday, and we'll, we'll pick it up with our, with, with, with our services this coming week. But I think it's important for us. I, I, this, I was really struck by this this week. How was it? It, it, it throws me off. It, it, it challenges me to think that out of a, a big crowd of people, and you can read the Bible and be like, ah, those, those silly, you know, silly disciples, they didn't get it. Like, and we could say, oh, we'd get it. And the reality is maybe some of us would. I wouldn't. My expectations would have gotten away, you know, unless I'd crispy them, you know, putting my feet back on the ground. But, like, the reality is in the week of history, is, is arguably the most important week of history. The, it, it's definitely the most studied week in all of human history. No one really got it. Everybody had ideas and expectations about God, what God would do, but in that week, those expectations got in the way of seeing God for who he really was. My question for you and me is, is, is that happening to us now? And, and, and if you grew up in church, if you consider yourself a Christian, if you've read the Bible, if you know the stuff, that does not make you immune. In fact, according to the Gospels, that puts you in a worse position because it seemed like the people who knew the most liked Jesus the least. The people who were most passionate about finding and seeing the Messiah were the first ones to miss him, the quickest ones to miss him. It puts people like me in their place. The pastors, the religious leaders, the people who study this stuff. And I have to humbly come before the cross every Easter and say, oh God, am I going to miss you? Because they missed you. Not everybody, but a lot of people missed you. And you came and you delivered us. You were willing to die on the cross for our sins. And I'm still sitting here today and thinking, well, God, if you were real, fill in the blank. If you were good, life would be good because I confuse God with life sometimes. And we're in danger because of our expectations of what God should be like, who he is. We're in danger of missing what he's actually doing. But, but what if this week, we did something different. What if we laid down our expectations? What might we learn about God? Some, some of you are really wrestling with doubt. You're wrestling whether God exists or not. What would it look like for just this week to kind of just lay down some of that and let God be God? Because here's the deal. is that Not everybody missed what Jesus do? Yes, the disciples missed it for a little bit, but let's throw them a bone. It, it, was, it was a huge head fake on Jesus' part. What, what he did on the cross, it's like, yes, he talked about it, but come on. That really? But they came around to it. And, and, and what I love is in the book of Acts, just is like five, six weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection, in the same town, at a different festival, another time when a whole bunch of Jewish people would be gathering to Jerusalem during the time of Pentecost is, is the, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon a small group of people. It was not that many disciples, apostles, believe, you know, followers of Jesus at that time. 
And they went out and they preached. They said, listen, God sent him. You killed him. But God raised him from the dead. Say you're sorry. <laughs> Repent. You know, you, you, God sent him. You killed him. God raised him from the dead, so say, you know, repent and say you're sorry. And the craziest thing is like 3,000 people did in one day. Because they knew that Jesus, they, they knew, that they, they, they had this ex expectation of, of what the Messiah should look like. But in that moment, they're like, I get it. They laid that down. They laid down their expectations and said, oh, they let Jesus be Jesus. And that's what I want you to do this week. My challenge to you this week is I want you to read a gospel, you can read it from start to finish, you can, you can page through it and just read portions of it. And what I want you to do is I want you to, to um, as you read it, give Jesus permission to change your mind about something, anything this week. How you view, view other people, how you view certain people, how you view yourself. Yeah, how, how what, it, it, lay down, I would, I'd love for you this week to give Jesus permission to change your mind on what Jesus should be like. On something, anything. Just one thing. Read the Gospels. And before you read them, say a prayer. Say, Jesus, this week I give you permission to change my mind. To change my expectations as to what I believe and who I believe you should be. And if you and I do that, I really believe it's Easter is such a powerful time. I'm so it's it, personally Easter is is just means so much to me. This week coming up, it's a solemn week. I'll, I fast on Fridays. We're going to invite you to fast with us on Fridays. On that Friday, Good Friday, and I'm convicted by who Jesus is. And instead of shaping Jesus into who I think he should be, I end up being shaped into his image. And that's what we have an opportunity for this week. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we come humbly before you. This is really what it's about. It's about humility, Lord. And, when the, and, and we get in the way and we... we mess up who you are and we have ideas and we won't, you know, like we resist and we doubt and Lord, you're gracious and we love you for that. And we also learn that in your word that, that, that there's a way back and that way is, is humility. I pray that we would be humble before you this week and that we would let you be you. And as a result, that, that we would take maybe just one step closer to you we understand you better, it, it just one degree better this week. Pray all this in your name. Amen.